All right, good morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, that's where we'll be this morning. We'll be doing one of those videos, I think, just about every Sunday and, and talk a little bit more about it, so um, kind of keep you posted on deadlines and things like that that are going to be coming up. One of the things that's happening at the end of September here is the Source a fundraiser up at the Mary Lynn on campus. We have uh, our artist coming in, William Butler. He'll be doing live art on stage for us, and then our worship team will be there with other folks from different churches will be um, on the team as well, um, on the worship team. And then we have a guest speaker coming in, and it's a fundraiser for the Source Medical Clinic. Um, and uh, they're up there on Main Street, just north of Orshland, so you can drive by and see their facility there. Um, and so that's what that's about. And that um, it's pro-life. It's what we're there for. I'm on the board. Um, we've been on the board since it began, and uh, it's been doing some great work in our community and around. So um, we need that support. So anyway, I'm selling tickets still, or we're selling tickets still, and they're on the back table there on your way out the door. Um, and it's kind of a self-serve deal now. I can't really stand back there and uh, be the you know, tickets, get your tickets. I don't want to do that anyway. Um, just uh, if you have cash or check, put it in the box, take your tickets. And then uh, if you have a, want to use your debit card or something, you can fill that out in the blue form, put it in an envelope, put it in there so we can debit your account, and then you can take the tickets as well. So it's just an honor system there. Also, if you decide at the last minute you can come, you can just show up at the door, and you can purchase your tickets there as well. Students get in uh, for 5 bucks with your ID, um, so it's uh, going to be an outreach as well, hopefully, and, and, and be a blessing. So that's coming up September 30th. Now, the following Sunday is Life Chain. This has been real difficult for me this year to get promoted and to get out there to let everybody know it's happening. Um, this is one of those ministries, uh, you know, if you can't do something weekly, if you can't do something monthly, but pro-life is something that you're very much interested in and want to be a part of or want to help, man, it's one thing a year. That's all you got to do is get the signs out there, explain to people what it's about, uh, get it promoted, um, and then uh, let them know this is a peaceful time of prayer as we stand along the roadside all over the nation. This happens everywhere, every city, just about, um, with just a, a peaceful um, morning time and prayer time over the loss of um, this year, over 900,000 babies will be aborted in our country. Um, that's one in six. One in six births are aborted among, um, among um, uh, minorities. It's uh, 66%. 66%. That's huge. That's, from, that's not for me. That's from the CDC. Um, so anyway, important. So if that's a ministry that you want to help with and want to be a part of, man, I'd love to turn that over. Just like we did Operation Christmas Style to JC and Andrea. If you want to take this over and get it out to the other you know, communities to so let them know that we're going to be doing this, that would be uh, a big help. So just let me know if you're interested. All right. Hebrews chapter 8. The writer of Hebrews is... Uh, Continuing on, letting the Hebrews know that they have this new high priest and he's better. Just flat out better. They had had this problem where they had come to Christ, um, they had gotten saved, um, excited for the Lord, but they had a hard time letting go of the old. In fact, they'd leave, it, something was drawing them back, and that's tradition for you. It's difficult. So, you know, our church is relatively new in the community. I think we've been here maybe 15, 16 years is all. Um, and it's kind of a new deal. It's a little different, and you show up, and this isn't how we used to do it at our place. This is kind of different. I know. I know. This is how God's led us to do it here, and, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's good. 
Um, I wouldn't say it's better, not like the writer here is saying, but I'm saying our tendency is to let go of the past very reluctantly. Anybody that's ever been in a corporation or worked uh, in a business of any kind and, and the manager comes up and says, we're changing things, it's going to be exciting. All the employees just go, oy vey, you know, oh, I've got to learn a new system, you know. What do you mean we're switching from Windows 7, you know? <laughs> I like, nobody liked Vista. I love Windows 7, though, or 8, not 10. What's this 10 thing? It's a struggle for us because we've become used to it. We've got it down. We've learned how to work it. Um, and I don't want to learn anything new. I'm too old to learn stuff that's new. I'm, I'm you know, I'm done. And this was hard for him. I'm giving him grace here. And I think God does too. And I think the writer does too. He's giving him grace. I know it's hard for you to let go of this stuff, but you need to. Because what you cling to, what you've gone to, is first of all, better. Um, It's far more streamlined. It's so much better. You know, and he's been trying to explain that to him, but he's going to continue on with what actually Jesus does and what he serves and what they used to serve. I think that's important. I think you can point out what it is they were doing compared to what it is they're going to be doing, that helps them to understand, you know, just a little more information. That's what the writer's hoping. If they just understand that what they're doing now is old and is obsolete, and it's not going to be there much longer. In 70 AD, the temple will be destroyed. So this thing that they're going back to, to worship in this old covenant, this old way, what they're used to, the traditions, isn't going to be there anymore anyway. You almost wonder if it wasn't on purpose. Several things God does in the Bible hides things from us. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. I mean, we know where it is. We've got the mercy seat in heaven, but we don't know where the actual Ark of the Covenant is. Even though we've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark so many times, we cannot figure out where that thing is. He does that on purpose, because you know, if we had it, we'd worship it. We'd have some magical things happen that whatever. Moses' rod, Aaron's rod, you know, that, that he had inside the ark, that's gone. We don't know where that is. There's a lot of things that he had. Moses' body was even disputed over and it was hidden. We don't really know where he's buried either because we'd worship him. That's just what we do. Worship bones, we embed them in altars, we call them relics, and we think that they're somehow uh, special. And they're not. God has never wanted us to worship things. And so he's just taking him to this point. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Now when the Bible says this is the main point, you've got to get your pens out, right? This is where you circle and underline or highlight. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. There's a difference. It's a copy. He's going to later on call it a copy and a shadow of a heavenly things, but it's not the actual. The things you guys used to do, they were just a copy. I was going to bring the plastic uh, kitchen set from the back playroom and set it up here. It's fun for kids. It's fun to pretend. It's fun to make the pots and pans rattle and stick things in the oven and pull them up. But by no means has there ever been a meal cooked on this thing. It's absolutely done nothing, but have, they've had fun with it. And they've learned. A little bit. But no, if you want to get things done, you got to get in the kitchen, you know? And I know that might be maybe a step too far for some, but honestly, it's just a copy. The tabernacle, the temple, the priest, the utensils, 
lampstand, the mercy, the ark, the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, the veil, um, the showbread on the right, the altar of incense. It's all a mock-up, a model of what's in heaven. I think it's funny, they sell little models in the Christian things of how to build a tabernacle and stuff. You can have your kids build a little, you know, scaled model of the tent. That's a model of a model of a thing, you know? Oh, we love tradition, though. And we can get caught up in that sometimes. We get sentimental about things, and they're sentimental about this. This is where we've always done. It's a part of our DNA, We've done this for so many generations. We always go to the temple. The priests always do that. They always offer up sacrifices. They always come out and say, We're, and you're saying that's all done with. You're saying that's all done. Yes. Yes, he is. It is. It's all done. The key word there, I think, is that our high priest now is seated. If you ever saw the temple, which you didn't, <laughs> if you ever saw pictures of the temple or pictures of the uh, tabernacle, that's the tent version of the temple, You'd see the priests constantly on their feet, constantly moving, constantly serving and sacrificing and doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was a busy, busy day for those guys, constantly. And that never ended because it was a constant, constant ministry. But this has changed. This ministry that our high priest, Jesus Christ, has now become not only of a different order of priests, the order of Melchizedek, a better priesthood, he's also seated, which means he's done. It's done. There is no more ministry to do. It's completed. It's finished. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. 2,000 years ago on the cross, he died for the sins of the world. There's no more to be done. It's finished. And he was seated at the right hand of the Father. It's complete. And he does that on purpose for us. He does that so that we can be seated, so that you can rest in your faith. He's always wanted us to have that rest, bring us to that place of rest. I want to rest. I don't want to wonder. I don't want to worry anymore about where I stand with God. I I want to rest and know. And if I see Jesus seated, and he's not biting his nails, staring at me, going, I don't know if he's going to get it or not. He's seated. I can be seated. You can be seated. We were talking about this on Sunday, or on Wednesday, excuse me, Wednesday night. How... When you understand the grace of God, you can then understand the peace of God. And that's how Paul writes it in every one of his letters, grace and peace, grace and peace. You got to know grace first before you can have peace with God. You got to know. And I believe the third thing then is holiness. That's what follows. I don't think you can do those in any other order. I don't think you can start with holiness. You have to start with grace. And then you understand and you have peace. And from that peace comes obedience, comes holiness. That's the next step. So all the things I think I'm doing by being busy in the ministry or running around in religiosity, doing my rituals and, and so forth, isn't doing me any good. It's just sweat. That's all it is. Sweat. It's work. And so the writer here lets us know, look, our high priest is seated. He's rested. And he is a minister of the true tabernacle, which God erected, the Lord erected, not man. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. It's better, it's better, it's better. My manager can try to tell me how great it's going to be once we all get this down, but it's a struggle. It's hard. But boy, when God says it, you know, you got to know it. You got to trust it. You got to rest in it. See, it's a mock-up. He says that very clearly there. This new one, this new high priest, this Jesus Christ, the others, they were there. They served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. But Jesus serves the reality of it, the true. In Colossians, the same writer, I believe, writes that we have to be careful that those are all a shadow and Christ is the substance. It's still the same thought. It's still the same idea in verse 5, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. We still do that in Christianity. We can still develop rituals that become so important to us that they replace the person they were intended for. See, God wants a relationship. He wants us to have a conversation with him. He wants us to truly experience him. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. Not to be outside, not to be in a box, not to be in a building, but in you and in me so that we can walk with him and hear his voice and be led by his spirit. It's It's a supernatural walk. My kids, it's fun to watch them get that as they get of age. First, they're drugged to church. Not drugged. They like it. They have fun. They play. They have fishy crackers. Really important stuff. Standard answers, Jesus, in all the Sunday school classrooms. It's your safe bet. But eventually they realize that we're not here for religion. We're not here because we go to a place. We read a book. We say words out loud. We sing along. They understand, no, it's about Jesus. It's a person. All this is for him. We come to worship him together as a group. Hopefully we worship him all week long on our own, but we come together one day a week or two days a week, depending on how often you come, to worship together. But this is by no means the experience. It's just a part of it. He wants us to do that. We should be walking with him every single day, praying without ceasing, being in constant contact with his Holy Spirit, being led by his Spirit in every way, in everything, in all things. That's the reality of it. Everything else has been a copy and a shadow, but we like ritual. I don't know why we do. God set up the sanctuary, um, the tabernacle and the temple on purpose. See, with Abraham, when this whole thing began, when he began to have that conversation with Abraham, God and, and Abraham, There was no temple. There was no tabernacle. It was just those two talking. That had been great. But then they got taken out of Egypt. This is generations later. This group, these Israelites who'd grown up in Egypt, who could see that temple and see that temple, and there's that God, and that's what that God looks like, and that's what they do there, and that's what they do there. They understood all that. They came out of Egypt saying, we want something like that. We want it. It's, It's easier for us to see it. Kids have a hard time with abstract thought. It's just a fact. They don't get it, not till they're older. God knows that about us. He knew that about them. As soon as Moses was coming down with the tablets of stone, he sees them, made this golden calf. This is the God that brought you out. Okay, they need something to look at. I'm making this up. I don't know exactly how he thought it, but I do know this. Right after the calf was destroyed, ground up to powder, and he made him drink it, he gave him the order to make the tabernacle. You can't make me, but you can make my furniture. A little mock-up, a little plastic kitchen, if you will. And you can go to it, 
and experience. This is not how I intended it to be, but if that's what you need, he did it. Make the tent just so. Make it just like the pattern I showed you. I want it to look just like heaven. It's not heaven. It's a model, but I want it to look like heaven. And he showed Moses on top of the mountain, this is what it looks like. And he made it. And he made priests running around in white. And he made the brass lavier that's here in front with the water in it that they would get into. You walk into the holy place and you've got the lampstand with the seven lamps on there. And you've got the altar of incense and you've got the showbread. And on the the curtain's there. And you go on the other side. The curtain is the big Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And all around in that room is embroidered angels and beings and creatures and stuff like that. Guys, it's just a mock-up. It's not it. It's not the thing. If you turn with me to Revelation 4, I'll read you the thing. I'll read you with what it was patterned after. John, while he's getting this revelation of Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ, gets to chapter 4. And the Lord says to him, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance, like an emerald. That's the Ark of the Covenant, that's the mercy seat. It's actually God's throne. But he's seeing the real. All we have is the copy that we carry around on our shoulders. But it's not the real thing. This is. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. That might be symbolic of the priests you'd see running around in their white robes out there, doing all the work and so on, except here they're seated. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. There's the lampstand, a copy of what we're reading. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and, the, and around the throne were four living creatures, that crystal glass, that's that brass laver out front right before you walk in. It's all full of water. Just a picture, just a type. I want you to know what to look forward to, God says. I want you to know what's coming. I want you to be excited and experience in such a meager way the reality of heaven and be thinking about it constantly. I want it to be in the center of your camp. I want it to be the focus of your life. Eternity with me, and if, if this is what you need to keep that on the forefront of your mind, boom, I'll plan it right, and you guys camp around it and keep looking at that. He wants us to still do the same thing. After a while, though, this began to be, well, let me finish up here. In the midst of the throne, around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That would be what would be embroidered on the walls in the holy of holy places. That's the pictures they, had to see, they got to look at once in a while. So that's the reality. I want it to be the forefront. But in no way do I want it to take the place of me, God would say. Jesus said, the volume of the book is written of me. I, 
We like the book, the Bible, but it's not him. It's written of him. I'm pulling this out because we can sign, we can get into that same habit of saying something's uh, sacred. This is sacred. I get that question. What should I do with my Bible, Pastor? I'm, I'm kind of done with it. It's torn. Throw it in the trash. They just throw it in the trash. There's no place for Bibles. Well, I don't think there's a Bible graveyard anywhere. Not that I know of anyway. I mean, you could do a little ceremony if you wanted to, but don't misunderstand me. God's word is perfect and pure and beautiful and it's alive and sharper than a two-edged sword, but this, this is just the paper and ink that it contains it. I can throw this away and I guarantee you there's about a hundred, well, they've got 10 more on the shelf out there. There's a hundred more down there. It's just paper and ink. Don't let it become sacred, the book itself. What it says is sacred. Who it represents is sacred, and it doesn't change. Not one jot, not one tittle. It's all good and perfect. But when I'm done with it, see, I write in mine. I put my notes in it and stuff. Some of these pages, I don't think you can even find some good ones here. I can't find any good ones now. But some of them, I can't even find the words anymore. And after a while, like you go your second time through, this is my fourth, third time through the Bible now. After a while, you can't see it anymore. And so you got to get a new one so you can find the words again, you know? It's not sacred. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit. Now, don't get upset. Do whatever you want to do with your Bible, but you're not in sin. If you toss it, or recycle it. Recycle it. That's a great idea. Throw it in the recycling bin. And maybe the garbage guy will read it or something. If he doesn't know the Lord, he'll be blessed. Or who knows? Send it to somebody if you want to. But it's not sacred. Okay? It's what he said is sacred. Not the paper and ink. But we can get hung up on stuff like that. We love tradition. We love that stuff. Some of you read the Bible on your phones. What do you do when you lose that program? You, know, you understand what I'm getting at. Okay, I don't want to... I don't beat on it too much. I just want, it, I want the reality of this to set in. The Hebrews could not stop themselves from going back to the copy, to the mock-up, to the plastic kitchen of what is the reality that they were brought into. Jesus Christ and his heavenly ministry in the heavens. He broke through the blue veil. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father on the actual throne. And that is how we worship him in spirit and truth now. We no longer go to this. Place. We no longer go to the priests. There is no more priesthood. There is no more. It's all gone. It's all been wiped clean. It's all better, is what he's trying to say. So, be careful. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, not with the covenant that God wrote, but with the people who were supposed to keep the covenant, that's them. He says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. That's they again. They're the problem. We're the problem. They did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That was a coming promise, a prophecy made about what it was going to be like under the new covenant. And that's here. Everybody studied this and knew this even under the old covenant. They were excited. Oh, I can't wait for this new covenant to happen. Oh, I can't wait when he forgets my sin, when he gives me mercy. What a great time that's going to be. I can't. And the writers here saying it's here, it's time. I've got uh, my notes here on my electronic device. That's what we old folks call these things, my electronic device. And now I can't find it. There it is. Just some notes that will be erased at the end. The writer here says, aren't you excited that this new covenant's been brought? We should be. Because the old covenant was nothing like this. It didn't give you mercy for unrighteousness. It made you offer up sacrifices for it. And then the unrighteousness still hung over your head because all it could do was wash over your sins. It could no, by no means take them away. And so this old covenant was flawed and had problems. It also says that in this new covenant, their sins and their lawless deeds will be remembered no more. That's a beautiful thing. Our God forgets, willfully, chooses to forget. See, I can't forget your sins. <laughs> I can let them fade I can let them almost disappear, but boy, if you do the wrong thing or if I smell the wrong smell or see the wrong sight, I can open that file again pretty easily. It's not deleted. It's still there, unfortunately. I'm just not capable of it. I've tried to forget. I've asked God to help me forget and to not be bitter, not to let those things, or not to put tick marks in the back of my head, you know. It's hard, but our God does forget. I'm very grateful for that. I'm very thankful for that. See, the only person that is worried about these other sins that we've been forgiven of is us. That's usually how it starts off in our prayer. Oh God, here I am again. Again? Our God would say. Yeah, you know, remember the last 25 times I did this? I've been here lots of times. Really. See, I remember. Satan remembers. Boy, does he remember. He's the accuser of the brethren. He always reminds me how worthless I am, how many times I did this, and how God's not going to listen to me this next time because this is like one too many times to ask for forgiveness for the same thing. We all go through it. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. We do. That's why he tells Peter it's 70 times 7 for the same sin in the same day. I don't think any of us have ever gone that far. Maybe you have. Scott's back from Alaska. Maybe he has. I don't know. Welcome back. The whole gang. 70 times 7. That's 490 times. You can do that. That's a lot of forgiveness. Jesus says you are, that's available to you if you need it. I hope none of us take him up on that offer. Really? Let me try that. No. Not a good idea. But it's there. And he forgets. He forgets. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Let me read you the definition of mercy. That's why I wanted to, that's why I got my notes here anyway, if I can do this. 
Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. That's what mercy is. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. I get the forgiveness part. That's like saying, all right. It's the compassion part that I have a hard time with. I can forgive you like this. Yeah, you're forgiven. I just put a little tally mark in the back of my head. That's one, buddy. You got two more. Because everybody knows, what, three strikes in? Right. No, it's not God, is it? That's me. Baseball analogies. That works great. Three strikes and you are out, man. That's one. That's not the forgiveness God gives us. God gives us a forgiveness that's mixed with compassion. That's the hard part. He's compassionate with us. We have a high priest who has compassion for us, who is in all points tempted but faultless. And he looks at me, and he doesn't just give me forgiveness like, okay, you know, with a little brow beating on the way out the door. No, it's with compassion. He gives me forgiveness, and then he forgets it completely. In Hosea 6.6, 6, it says this. God wrote this through his, through his prophet. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. He, he wants us to ask him for mercy. He wants to give mercy. He wants to be the merciful one. I'm not interested in your payment. I don't want your sacrifice. What I want is mercy. I want to give that to you. I want to give you mercy. There's something about that. Mercy, the way we described it earlier, compassion with forgiveness mixed, that kind of mercy restores the relationship, restores the conversation, brings us closer together. Like the song we sang, I draw near to you, you draw near to me. That's a promise from God. That's the drawing near to one another is in that mercy. In sacrifice, that doesn't cut it. That's just a payment of a penalty. That's just your penalty's been paid. It's very businesslike. It's very um, cold. It says, no, I don't, I don't want that. He did sacrifices so that we'd remember how bad our sin was. Don't you know that innocent has to die? Innocence has to die for your guilt? For your shame, for your sin, don't you understand that? Because they got to the point where like, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, what's the big deal? And they could sin at will without a conscience, without being hurt, without finding, uh, without being sad about it. It's like, no, no, no. So he introduces this sacrificial system where they lay their hands and pass on their guilt of their sin onto this innocent animal who didn't do anything wrong but get up and eat grass that day, and they slaughter it. And that was supposed to invoke an emotional response that had disappeared somewhere along the line. But then it got to the point where we killed so many animals, we don't even care anymore. I got like five goats out there. It looks like I'm going to have a good Friday night tonight. No, no, dude. You missed the point. And so God is bringing them back in this new covenant to this place, no longer sacrificing, no longer slaughtering animals, no longer sacrifice, but mercy for your unrighteousness. And I'm going to forget your sins. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had, uh, he had just called Matthew the tax collector to be a disciple of his. Nobody was happy with that anyway, except Matthew, of course. And then he went to Matthew's house and ate with all of his Matthew tax collecting buddies and other sinners there, and they were incensed. He's eating with sinners, you know, kind of thing. Can't believe what he's doing there, the Pharisees and all. Let me read to you what it says here, beginning in verse 12 of Matthew 9. That's the background. 
When Jesus heard that, that they were upset that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a lot going on there with Jesus and these guys and that whole thing. First of all, he says, oh, I I didn't come to call you healthy guys. There's got to be some tongue-in-cheek there. Because we know that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. These guys needed Jesus just like everybody else. They needed forgiveness, right? But he looks and he goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm just here for these poor sick people over here. Not you, not you healthy guys. Not you spiritually healthy guys over there. It's, it's got to be that way. Because we know they needed Jesus. And we know that many of them came to know Jesus and accepted him as their Lord and Savior because of comments just like this. And then he tells these guys, these Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, these are lawyers and everything, who do nothing but study the scriptures and teach it, he tells these guys to go and learn. That's so great, you know? Hey, guys, go and learn what this means. That's so insulting. It'd be like going up to your professor and say, why don't you go study again? It looks like he, <laughs> you know, well, you're going to get a good grade this semester, you know. Go study and learn. Go learn this. I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. They should have known Hosea 6.6. In fact, they did. But they didn't know the heart. They didn't know the author. They didn't know the point of that. They only knowed, knowed. <laughs> wow. They only knew the letter, but they didn't know the spirit. And so he tells them to go learn that. And then he says, I better finish why I write these things down, because I don't note it. <laughs> For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They, they needed to know. They needed to know that they needed him just as badly as these guys did. That they were in the same boat as the tax collectors and the sinners. You guys need me just as bad. But if you don't think you do, if you don't want to have me, then I'm not yours anyway. I guess I'm for these guys. So don't even worry about it. If I'm that bad of a guy for eating with these guys, you must not need me. You must be better. I mean, there's a whole lot going on here. God loves mercy. I'm so thankful that he does. And he's trying to tell, the writer is, to the Hebrews, you have now a high priest who loves mercy. He's going to exchange it for your unrighteousness. He's going to exchange it for your sins. And he's going to forget your lawless deeds. I'm not going to remember them anymore. Finally, in verse 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The first covenant is obsolete. It means it's voided out. There's no power in it anymore. It's not in force anymore. I'll just let that sit there because we can do that. We can fall back into that. We think it'd be better to mix maybe the old and the new. And you can't. It's gone. The old is gone. It's absolutely not even doable anymore. The temple has been destroyed. There's no way to offer up sacrifices anymore. There's no way for us to do what the old required us to do. It's just gone. When Jesus flipped the tables the second time, as he's coming out of the temple, do you remember what he said to everybody? Well, not everybody, but the folks still left in there wondering why their temples or tables were flipped over. He looked at him and he says, I leave your house desolate. Well, remember the first time he went? My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. When he leaves, he says, I leave your house to you desolate. God moved out of the temple a long time ago. That's yours. I'm not there anymore. 
I was there when I flipped the tables and I want it to be a house of prayer. I'm leaving your house to you desolate. What they were going back to didn't exist. There was still the involuntary twitching of a dead corpse going on. But it was no more alive than it It's not. It's just dead. There was nothing there. The priests were running around. They're still killing animals. There are people still doing their thing. But God wasn't there anymore. It was dead. They were called to come out of there. The woman who was at the well, wondering about whether we should worship up in the mountain or down at the temple, he says, woman, I'm telling you, pretty soon we're going to worship in spirit and truth. It's coming. It won't matter. It's not about longitude and latitude. It's about your heart. It still is to this day. We have to remember that as Gentiles, as believers. We can't get into this habit of making things sacred. Uh, Rituals that might have helped us to begin with on, this is how I have to have my quiet time to maintain discipline because I'm such a weak person. I need to do this. I need to keep this every 6 a.m., 6 a.m., 6 6 a.m. I have to do that. That's fine. But don't let the 6 a.m. be your God. You're there to meet God. You're there to talk with him. You're there to have a relationship with him. You're there to fellowship with him, not go through the motions. This place here, this room, it's not a sanctuary. It's not. This isn't a church building. There's no such thing as a church building. It doesn't exist. We're the church. You're the church. People are the church. The body of Christ is the church whether you're meeting in this location, longitude and latitude, or that location, longitude and latitude, that's the church, that's the body of Christ. This, this is where today we're studying the Bible, and we're reading, and we're going to pray, and we did some worship songs to God that we love him. But later on, we're going to tear the chairs out and put a blue line down here. We're playing dodgeball in here, maybe. Or we'll have a potluck next Sunday or something in here. It becomes a great dining room. But it isn't sacred It's set apart for his glory to use for him, for his people, for the church to use to bring him glory. But it isn't sacred at all. And we have to be careful of that in all areas of our life, that we are worshiping God in spirit and truth and not in religion or in ritual. When he says that that verse is becoming obsolete, now... What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And he was probably prophesying a little bit about what was going to happen to the temple in 70 AD when it's destroyed and wiped out. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. What are you going to do then? Nothing. You can't. Now, I've told you what we're not supposed to be doing anymore. Let me finish up with this last verse, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. The Holy Spirit had just come upon 120 believers waiting for him in the upper room. They've come out filled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues. All the world is hearing the gospel, the good news of of God being proclaimed in their own language. This is the birth of the church. This is the birth of what God would have us do. And nowhere in here does he tell us what to do. It just happens naturally. Very important to pick up on that. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. That's what they did naturally. 
that this isn't a formula. It isn't something, okay, now we need to have 25% of the time spent in God's Word, 25% breaking bread, 25% in fellowship, and 25% in prayers. No, they just did those things naturally. It's hard to get your body not to fellowship with itself. It just does it. When I go to sleep, the whole thing goes to sleep. It's great. Except for that restless leg thing. I hate that. Anybody have that? I hate that. The whole body goes to sleep and just kind of rests. My hands are doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm turning the pages. None of these fingers are having a conference. They're just doing it. Here we go, boys. You know, and They're just paying attention to the head and being led by the nervous system. And it's functioning and it's coordinated like it's supposed to be. It's beautiful. It's alive. No one's reading manuals. That's what we're supposed to continue in. So I told you what he's told us, what we're not going to do, but I'll tell you what we can do. We can continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, which we did this morning. We studied God's Word in prayers, which happens sometimes here in meetings, and some, hopefully most of the time, all week long, you're praying. We can come together. Fellowshipping, hopefully you're inviting each other over to each other's houses and having meals together, maybe even cracking open God's Word and looking at it a little bit on your own. That's great. Go for it, you know. Breaking of bread, you can have a meal together, or maybe even talking about communion that we have here once a month. But all these things just naturally should be taking place because we've been filled with the Spirit. I don't know what's supposed to happen tonight. Pray. God, what would you have me do tonight? It's kind of fun to leave your leave your days open to see what God wants to do with them. You know? It's kind of fun to let it happen, you know. Hey, I got invited over. Sweet. We don't have to cook, you know, kind of thing. We've got planned tonight, so. Continue, guys. Just continue. Please enjoy. I know you do. Please enjoy the fellowship of God, being in his presence, hearing his voice, not worried about whether you did it right because you can't do it wrong when you're talking to him. Just talk to him. Spend time in prayer together with him. Communicate with him. Read his word. Ask him the tough questions. Ask him the tough questions. God loves it when you ask him the tough questions. He says, you and me, let's reason together. He likes to do that with us, and he's a very good teacher. Spend time with him, and then spend time with each other. Of course you have. I'm preaching to the choir. Here you are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we don't want to ever go back to that ritual. We don't want to ever go back to religion. God, we always want to just have this relationship with you. So God, show us in areas of our life that maybe need to be thought about a little bit more, you know? Things that might have become or started off as a way for us to fellowship with you or to get closer to you, but have turned into more of a a routine than anything. Because we don't want routines, God. We want to truly have a, a marriage to you. We truly want to have a friendship with you. We truly want to have a father-son, father-daughter relationship with you where you talk and I talk and you teach and I listen and I learn and I change. That's what we want, God. So we thank you that you want to do that with us. Uh, Help us take advantage of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.